Today, we have a guest that will intrigue you with her focus on personal storytelling, Esther Choi with Leadership Story Lab. Esther's writings and her book, Let the Story Do the Work, actually found me as I was researching the art of story seeking, not storytelling. You see, I'm a big believer that if you ask the right questions and connect the right dots, the bigger picture comes into light. In that, I found a kindred spirit in Esther. Her background actually begins as an orientation staff advisor in higher education. What became abundantly clear to Esther during her time in this role is that the way an applicant tells their story makes all the difference. She explained that rather than a linear path of facts unfolding, applicants that were really themselves telling a story that was interesting about their life or their passions with all the highs and lows were the ones that were remembered. Now, I think we all want to be the kind of leader that tells our story in a way that connects with other humans. Unfortunately, we don't all have the tools in our toolbox to do this well. Esther turned this experience into a business, and she now trains organizations on the do's and the don'ts, even having a model for it she calls IRS, and that's not Internal Revenue Service. Listen in and learn more about Esther's insights. I know I certainly learned a lot. All right, Esther. So here is the deal. I started researching this idea of storytelling as part of some of my own writing that I have been doing. And I came across something you had written. And I was so fascinated. I believe in the power of storytelling as a leader in terms of a way to connect with other people. I've seen it happen firsthand in some of my leadership development forums, some of my education. And just when people share their own personal story, you just feel so connected to them. And the piece I think that you do that's so interesting and different from what I was looking for actually is teaching people how to do that. And so I felt like I was a kindred spirit with you and I've been following your work. So tell us a little bit about you and your professional journey, how you got started on this path. 2020 is actually the 10th year anniversary for me having taught storytelling. When I started and I used to tell people, oh, I teach storytelling, the closest thing people have in mind was you write children's book, (laughs) you play banjos on stage as a corporate retreat entertainer. What does that mean? And that was the majority of the responses I used to get 10 years ago. Now I tell people I teach storytelling. I still get the quizzical look, but more likely I'll hear, oh yeah, storytelling. I read an article here and there and everywhere. Oh, it's so important. So thankfully, 10 years, it's not because of me necessarily, but there's just a huge awareness now of the importance of it. And so I've been doing this for 10 years, accidentally stumbled upon it, never would have thought in any of my college, grad school admissions essays could I have put, when I grow up, I would like to be telling stories and teaching storytelling. Well, it, it has become the buzzword. I know you even mentioned that in some of the things I've listened to, that everybody wants to be a storyteller now. But tell me what it was in your trajectory. I know you come from the higher education space. What was it that sparked your interest and and how did you start studying and learning in a way that you could teach other people? When I was in grade school, all girls Catholic school, that I was too nosy. (laughs) So my parents had nipped it in the bud that you need to focus, you need to study, you need to pay attention or at least look like you're paying attention, never mind what other kids are doing. So anyway, I never could turn off that part of my brain. Just curious about people. What began as really placing a seed for 
huh, I wonder if there's a way for people to learn this systematically. More of recognizing the need was when I was an admissions officer at Chicago Booth. I work for the full-time MBA program, and most elite schools have the luxury of choosing their best candidates. And once you reach a point where you have the credentials, you have all the qualifications, there's still not quite enough to get to the finishing line. Right. And I remember when we sat in committee, we go to bat for people because there's something in their application that really spoke to us that made us believe that They should be allowed in, not others, when we've never even met them. So I think some have told better stories beyond turning their resumes, their applications into another narrative form, resumes and applications. So those are the ones who ended up being admitted beyond that they have the best qualifications. Part of the reason I was so intrigued by you is because it wasn't just storytelling for storytelling's sake. I think there's a part of that that you teach in terms of branding, but it was really about personal storytelling. Our audience for the show is marketers and being able to market yourself in a way that people can connect with. Were your ideas that bubbled up out of that process because you saw other people do things really well, or did you create a philosophy about the arc of that story? That's a very great investigative question. (laughs) Light bulb didn't come to me right away. I was there from 04 to 07. I didn't launch this business until 2010. Okay. It was more of that, well, some people made it, a lot more don't. Some knew how to do it. Most people don't. Just because they're lucky, they had good role models. They were just born with those gifts. And I just noticed that this is just like anything else. You can learn. You can get better at it. Will take some longer more practice than others. But my experience has been, this is very teachable. And what we often talk about is that missing texture. I'll tell you something that admissions officer ask and say, it's the most honest to God truth, but it's the most useless thing that they tell applicants. And that is be yourself, the most important, useful thing to us as I come. Now, to applicants, it would just make your head spin in all sorts of directions that I didn't have the empathy to understand. Why can't you just be yourself? Tell me your story. Well, of course you can. Well, what part of me do you want to know? When I'm putting my suit, I have my A game on, and I'm really, I have hot hands, and I'm just winning all the time, or the part of me when I'm cooped up at home, and I wasn't allowed to go outside, and I'm stuck with my kids, that's part of me too. What part of me do you want to know? And so, yes, there is a methodology to, I don't want just a shiny, I don't want just a whiny. There is a method to the madness of combining both that you be you, but you be you while you tell me a great story on top of you having great credentials. Your concept of the story curve and the shiny whiny. I love that idea in terms of how we talk about ourselves. But as it relates to you, Esther, as you're coming up and you were noticing this curiosity in yourself, did you learn how to tell your story? And was there sort of a moment of inspiration in, in your upbringing? Yeah, I was always told that, yes, I was nosy. I am good with words, so therefore I should aspire to be a lawyer repeatedly. Thank God I didn't really take that seriously. 
because I just don't have the discipline and the focus. I did notice that when I was interviewing for jobs myself, as long as I'm one of the final candidates, I get job offers every time. And then I did notice that when my family member wanted me to persuade somebody on behalf of the family, whether it's with a vendor or intra-family branches issues, they push me out. So those are some what I consider random attributes that might have helped me. But I think what was most useful was I, I do like to watch people. Not what people do, but how they react. So an example would be, I used to teach for the Department of Quantitative Business at the University of Zurich. So it's a data analytic course, capstone, master's degree level. And I personally thought it's super cool, but I don't get the same reaction out of people. This is many years ago now. So I thought maybe I was being too winded, you know, <laughs> department of quantitative business, master's degree, capstone program, data analytics. So then I would way shorten it. I would say I used to teach for the University of Zurich, not much difference. And then one day I decided to try Instead of saying any of that, I used to say, every spring I teach in Switzerland. Creates a little intrigue. So your reaction exactly. I would get, ooh, ah, wow, tell me more. And so as soon as I notice that difference and I do notice that people's reaction, I adapt, I refine, and then I get consistent results. So I am telling stories not for my own amusement or to make me feel good about myself. I'm telling stories so that I can either inform or entertain or enlighten, preferably all three. There is an inherent aptitude or an interest in you to be curious. You're good at creating an argument. You're good with words. But it was the awareness or the intuition you had about people's response that is so true to find a good storyteller. So often I say to my creative counterparts, how do you do it? How do you come up with the idea in a way that sings to the client? And so often they say, you can't explain that. That's where you're different is you actually have come up with some things that you hold true, which really inspired you to start Leadership Story Lab. Is that right? That's right. I have taken many writing classes myself and, you know, have pursued other art as just hobbies. And I do understand the need and necessity for practice and feedback. But what was a bit frustrating was that, especially during the feedback process, I felt like I was led in a loop going nowhere. And then some writing classes just devolve into an involuntary self-help group. I have also heard from clients who have worked with others, coaching companies. It was fun. It was great. It was very interactive. We just don't know what to do with it. Oh, yeah. My singular purpose is to make it useful, make it applicable, and make it repeatable. The template approach, what I call as make IRS your best storytelling friend, that is so repeatable, it's so useful, and so applicable. All engaging stories have three parts. IRS does not stand for Internal Revenue Services. Rather, it stands for Intriguing Beginning. R stands for Riveting Middle. And S stands for Satisfying End. That's all you have to know. That's all you have to remember. 
At the time that you decided to start the business, when did you write the book? Did those things go hand in hand? Because I'm sure one informed the other, right? Definitely. I did at some point fancy myself as an author, although I don't know what. I just <laughs> love writing, love telling stories. And once I started the company, then the need to amass a body of work in the form of a book became very apparent. Uh, majority of people, of course, they know storytelling, but they had no idea how that applied to business. And so it starts from a very basic level. And I wasn't even sure if that was a viable business at all. But I was very lucky to have tons and tons of mentors, one of whom is Don Norman, a design critic. When he started, people didn't know what UX was. Why should you care about users, right? Sure. But his stories helped a great deal because you really can be a pioneer, come up with methodology, thoughtful and structured and accessible to people. This is not some uber high level conceptual stuff. This is something that everybody understand. Don was the one who put that book idea in my head in the first place. And I thought, I've always wanted to write a book. Maybe I can write about this. In my research about you, you talk about story design, even leveraging storyboarding. Talk about how your relationship there maybe influenced the arc of storytelling and some of the principles that you teach today. The idea is that there are a few things that us white-collar working adults are severely deprived of, even before COVID, and that is we are physically, ergonomically very confined to a certain position. I do believe the mind and body connections that one inform the other and vice versa. So when your body has been too restricted for hours on end every single day, it affects your brain. We're starving for is the space to imagine. Storyboarding gets you out of your seat, move around, even if it's not physical exercise, that helps already a lot. And it has an element of surprise because most people are not familiar with it. And so it keeps them guessing. And then it has a little bit of risk because also most people don't consider themselves good artists or good at drawing. So you push them to draw something and that would be displayed in public. That's a risk. When all you can draw is simple figures, stick figures, circles, squares, straight lines, that leaves tons of white space to imagine what could be. And that's a lot of times what storytelling is. When you're commanding a room and you're running a workshop and you're getting people to get out of their comfort zone and start practicing this, how do you tee it up for them? I loved your IRS model, but what are some of the other basic themes or principles they need to understand before they start to engage in a storyboarding exercise, for example? You have to first demystify that. Can you put a dot on the page? And then you literally make them, I put a dot on the page. Can you draw a line on the page? And then you make them literally draw a line on a page. Okay, everybody did that. All right. You're ready. Right. <laughs> Getting more comfortable. Sure. Getting more comfortable. Don't surprise them by asking them to draw. Let's draw a well and then a frock at the, at the bottom of the well. Sure. You know, don't do that. Once you get them, the idea is really that simple. Then you want to start off with anchoring in a model. And this model can be anything, but 
it has to be based on the main goal of your storyboarding exercise. I have different ones, IRS being one of them, and the other is a concentric circle of unequal distance. So if you can imagine three circles, but the bottoms are closer, it's like a nesting egg. I would draw in the middle norm, like the middle circle. And then at the most outer ring, I would draw right next to it too weird. Meaning that most people try to stay in the norm, but some people can be too weird. So weird that others turn off. They don't want to hear anymore. They're looking for that exit. So what you try to do is stay in the middle. So outside of the norm, but not too weird. Is that in the context of your own personal storytelling or when building a story about a business strategy or can it apply to all of the above? It can be applied to the all of the above. Now, here's where that is really powerful combinations with facilitations, facilitating other people telling stories. Most people can't argue with me that staying in the middle rain is a good idea. There are, right. of course, exceptions. But now that you anchor the storyboarding experience with the simple visuals, then you want to design a whole bunch of questions, leaving them to brainstorm. When was the time when you might have unintentionally been too weird and turned <laughs> people off? It could be, what's the advantage of staying in the norm? Or it could be, with our current strategies, what part of it can we push all the way out while still staying within the middle range so that we stood out without turning people off? You get people to either use stickers, you use full-size paper and whatnot. The sky's the limit. It's so fun. I love that you can bring teams together in engaging ways to get them to think outside the box. But I know you offer a lot of services through your business. If you only have, let's say, an hour with a team to help them understand some of the basics of storytelling, what are some of the things you teach? Structure, first of all. If they know nothing else, they must know IRS. And the second thing would be suspense and surprise. I want them to know how to condense every single deck down to three sets of 10 words. One of the things I've read that you talk a lot about, even before some of that, is really knowing your audience. And that's so important for a marketer. We challenge ourselves ever to say, how are they coming into this conversation? Or where are they? Where do we need to move them? And so a lot of those concepts seem true as you're building that story arc or teaching people to put in themselves in their audience's shoes. There's a really simple exercise I'd actually learned from a writing class. And that is you take a blank piece of paper or a whiteboard, draw a line in the middle, and then on the left-hand side, you write down on the top, no, K-N-O-W. And then on the right-hand side, on the top, you write down, don't know. And then with your team, preferably, you brainstorm everything that you think your audience know and everything that they don't know. That exercise alone put you that much closer in their shoes. I know people know that saying, put yourself in someone's shoes, but it goes back to my singular purpose. How do you do that? This is a very systematic way, especially when you do it with your team, because you can feed off of each other's idea. So after you've done that, you've thought about your audience, but they're coming into the room knowing and not knowing, and you have to build the story. I've heard you talk about the difference, like you said, between being informative versus persuasive versus entertaining. How do you know how to set your hook as you're thinking that through 
to begin the, the structure part of outlining your story. Yeah, I talk about that in my book a lot. Let the story do the work in the very beginning, because this is also through observations in the beginning. I don't know what people don't know. It's only through their reaction. So I've done a few sessions on how do you hook people's attention? And they were hooked. Right. And they asked for more. Right. And so I thought, oh, the topic in hooking your audience attention is a pretty good hook. Maybe I should do more of it. And the end goal of getting people's attention is that they have to want more. This is part of the feedback that when I run feedback sessions, I divide them into strategic parts. And then certain parts of it, especially in the beginning, the best compliment you could ever possibly received is, man, Misty, tell me more. And then what happened? Right. And so that singular achievement of getting people to want more, you're 50% there. As I was reading in preparation for today, it's not that you can't give people information or education and the facts, but you got to get them over that hump in the first place. The challenge for me as a storyteller and a marketer is that I want to give them everything, right? I want to connect all the dots and overwhelm and make sure they know everything I know. How do you teach, once you've gotten through the hook, how to boil it down to the core idea and make it riveting? Business storytelling is a strategic sequencing of facts and emotion. There are basic things that you can do or restrain yourself from doing that really helps you strategically sequence the facts and emotion. I tell everybody, when you recount events, that is not telling stories. When I woke up this morning, I had breakfast, I went to work, that is not a story. Now, if you woke up this morning, you had breakfast that your kids prepare for you for the first time in their lives, and then they picked up everything by themselves and they are at the car before you are. That is the beginning of a story because there is that elements of this has never happened before. You were surprised, right? right? And so the surprise and suspense sometimes happen. We just got lucky as we recount events. But as storytellers, we have to really artfully place them in the right order in your storytelling in order to create that suspenseful and surprising flow. How do you get to the satisfy piece, the last piece of your model? How do you mm. end? How do you end or where do you end when you, you, luckily for most business people, you end when you are out of time or you end when you run out of time with your story prep? I would just say this. It really should be you end on a sense of closure with the emotion that they have to do something. My colleague, Rena, we just finished first certification, story facilitator certification process. And she was telling a story about how she used her facilitation training when she went to her local Salvation Army to donate stuff. And she just thought to ask the volunteer, so during this pandemic, what has surprised you most about the need of this community? And he was surprised because nobody asked him questions like that. He said, we realized that, yes, this is a very affluent neighborhood, but there are pockets of extreme needs, mostly headed by single parent, and many of them will face homelessness. Wow. And I was homeless at one point. I was also addicted to heroin. Oh, wow. Salvation Army helped me 
overcome both. And so now I'm volunteering to give back. So she was able to talk through how she used her facilitation skills to ask probing questions. Then she's able to share that story to enact other people's goodwill to do something about the problem, right? Yeah. She is known as Salvation Army for so many years, and that's her spot to drop off donation. But she never knew what it meant to those they serve. And then, in fact, she went home, look online, look at what other programs they are offering And look at what else can she do. I appreciate that story. I also heard you say, it's one thing to tell a story, but sometimes the audiences need you to translate what the story means or what you're asking them to do as a result of having told them that story. And I thought that was really important as it relates to closure or call to action, as we would call it in the marketing space. In fact, a CMO of a major airline told me whenever he would have to listen to a presentation, especially that had to do with data, he would say, I'll listen to whatever you want to present to me but you have to answer two questions. Why should I care and what you want me to do about it? So to your question, the satisfying end to him would not be satisfying until you answer those two questions. You've given me a lot to think about as it relates to some of the basic premises that you teach. Speak if you would, to this idea of the principal elements of storytelling and the five basic plots. That seems really core to your delivery model. It is. In fact, when I write the script for my podcast, I think about, is it overcoming the monster? Is it rack to riches? Should it be rebirth or is it the quest? Each of them has their own unique arc. I was very taken by the executive producer, Matt Wyman is his name, I think. He said, perfect, happily married couple with no problems are not good stories. Right. And so it's in the challenge that one face and overcome that make up the core element of the stories, although their journey looks different. And so I use these five as a guide. I'm not writing an autobiography for my guest. And the focus, the listening audience really wanted to know in this particular juncture, extreme transition for your family enterprises, what did you do? How did you feel? What obstacles did you overcome? And so I think about how those art would most likely played out based on what the materials they gave me. And then I morph them into one of these five. And sometimes they're hybrid and they're not meant to be restrictive or formulaic. But what I love about template is that it gives you a great starting point instead of staring at a blank page or feeling overwhelmed by, I've got so much. What do I do? We can all relate to that. Every movie we've ever watched probably falls into one of those five buckets, and it gives you a starting point. Talk a little bit, too, about how, again, to take this back to how, as leaders, we can use this to connect with our teams. If we can create that art of connection by sharing our own conflict in our lives, how have you coached people to do that on a very personal level? I was perusing your LinkedIn profile, and it says that You help leaders both define their personal vision statement based on their values and then do it with a very authentic voice and tone. And I think that there has to be an element of both, like you said, the good and the bad in there about what they've been through in their life. 
Yeah, I never ask people, my clients. So, Misty, what is your single greatest achievement, or what、right. are your top three or five or ten? I don't ask any of those questions because it feels to a lot of people posture. Obviously, I'm shooting for something. So when you're asked these questions, you feel like you had to deliver on something,、right. and that's I think what people are getting tired of hearing. So instead, I ask people, "What do you do on a Saturday morning?" Or I ask you, "What is a hobby?" Even if you don't have time to pursue right now, at one point in your life was really important to you, and you're not pursuing it because it's good for your career. Let's talk more about that. And this is why it makes it fun to do the coaching part because you really get to know people. I admit it satisfies my nosy nature. <laughs> I'm not just asking these questions just to make me feel good, but oftentimes, what people do on a Saturday morning tells us a lot about what he or she really cares about. That the morning that they don't have to go to work, that that's what they do. And the same thing with hobbies. Oftentimes, people pay a lot of money, spend a lot of time, sometimes physically endure some pains, but they love it. Right. Not being paid is not good for their career. So why do they do it? When you dig really deep into various aspects of your life that seemingly had nothing to do with your leadership style, who you are as a person, these are the best window into the character of a person. I'm sure through that story seeking, you're able to elevate for your coaches. Here's some things that seem important to you, and then hopefully they're able to translate that story seeking to their teams and the people that they lead. The chairman of a marketing group they specialize in all things nonprofit fundraising. This is his fourth career. His name is Jeff Peters. He owns a farm as a hobby, and they produce award-winning olive oil. But on this farm. They also have over a hundred rescue animals. That's just what he and his wife, his family. That's what they like to do. That's what they do on a on a Saturday morning. Everybody lit up about the rescue animals. So I would say use personal but not private materials. There is such a thing as oversharing,、sure. and I definitely encourage people to guard against that. But think about things that are personal but not private. Those are the sweet spots, materials where it lit people up. It makes you feel relatable. It makes you seem much more trustworthy. And then also reveal your characters. I'm a big believer that when you've done your own work to figure out what it is that makes you uniquely you and ask yourself all those hard questions, it does make you more connected and gives other people permission to do the same. Ultimately, changing the culture of an organization. And it sounds like you teach your coaches to do those very things. There's a certain protocol and culture in corporate America. There are just certain things that people don't bring up. And then every one of us fall in line, and we just fall in the norm. But it takes a few people, especially those with leadership positions, set a good example and make sure people have a good experience with it. Then they'll keep doing it. The idea of sharing your story is not a new concept. I know for Samantha, a few years back, we embraced Lencioni's Advantage model, and to build foundational trust, one of the things we did was we shared all of our personal stories of our upbringing. And the level that that allowed us to get to know each other on a very different, intimate level beyond "Hey, in the hallway, say hello" 
it started to change the culture of our organization. I guess one of the things that I had never thought about from your material is that you talk about the concept of how sharing your story changes the power that you have in leadership. And it's not sort of authoritative, granted power, but it's a different kind of influential power. It's the whole idea that, Misty, if you're my boss, I have to work for you. But Misty, you're not just my boss, you're my leader and mentor, my role model. I want to do my best for you. I want to work for you. If you're somewhere else, I still want to follow you. And the difference is you're tapping in people's intrinsic motivation. And studies after studies after studies have shown and proven that when you can tap into your workforce intrinsic motivation, then you don't have a bunch of employees and your workforce, you have a real high-performing team. You're creating a following, a momentum to do good work in the world. I was talking to a coworker the other day, and she was explaining to me another coworker who just started at Samantha said, you know, Misty intrigues me, but I don't know her story. And I loved hearing that feedback because it was like that is coming from an employee saying, I want to know more about the history of this leader. And I think that all of us have so much to learn from figuring out, to your point, where are those boundary lines? How much do we want to say about ourselves and to what end? What, what impact do we want it to have in the organization? There's unfortunately no hard, fast rule, except for certain principles, like personal but not private. And then the other, this one I encourage everybody to follow as well, and that's straight from the National Speaking Society, and that is don't ever use your audience as your therapy. I would agree with that. Well, I want to close here and talk a little bit more about your services and maybe you can point us to your book, but is there anything else about your philosophies or core truths that you believe about this concept of storytelling that you want to share with our listeners? Throughout my experience, certain things hold true across industries and functions. One is that people are hungry for personal stories. So when that's well-crafted, you literally relax the room Mm. and allow people to open up and communicate. So that's one. Leaders should really set the example to tell more personal stories. Number two is that there's some risk involved. You know, you can share the wrong story, irrelevant stories. I have advised a client when he represented his firm in a finalist situations to be the first Western investment firm to manage $250 million investment mandate for some country with billions of people. He told a personal story about his grandmother, especially for a conservative industry. That's just grandmother. Right. No. Right. But without that story, the Two dozens of so judges in the panels, to them, his team looked just like the seven other finalists. Because I've seen so many materials, especially these decks, you cross out their logo, if you remove their brand color, Mm. you just look at what they're saying, they all sound the same. So I can't stress enough that across industry, people are hungry for it. And that is oftentimes what makes the difference. And I think you want to tap into people's other senses. 
Again, I think as white collar working adults, we're too constrained in a couple of areas. And so when you draw, even if you draw simple stuff, I like to say, save the best for never, meaning your best visual should never be in your deck. The best visual should save for your Zoom meetings, your any sort of virtuals, or even in person, hopefully one day, is that you want to engineer almost that sense of spontaneity. Oh, that's a good question. Let me let me illustrate. One of my many mentors have taught me that to look effortless requires a lot of effort. It takes a lot of prep time, but that's a really interesting insight. It's hard to not seem overly rehearsed or overly prepared, but if you really think about those compelling moments and those ways of connection, then you kind of always have it in your back pocket and you can bring it out when the moment calls. I can really put a plug for listening sure, and improv. The idea is that you practice, you prepare, you know your script, you know your stuff, but then you need to be ready moments notice to scrap everything and come up with a new script. I love it when I sometimes, I don't always find that moment, but sometimes I literally grab the notes from people. Then there's a second of tug of war with the paper. And then eventually they relented and they are so surprised by actually your work better. And season one, I had an opportunity to interview Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs. I don't know if you know him. But he talked about that a lot. He said, you know, you can go on a video shoot and you can have it all scripted out and planned and have the best intentions and then something will spark your interest and you just need to go down that rabbit hole. So I think that is part of finding the story is identifying. I think I even read that you call it aggressive listening or crazy good questions. Mm -hmm. Just the bravery of being willing to ask the hard thing is sometimes what it takes to find the nugget of truth or wisdom. There are templates. There are 10 crazy good questions templates. The Salvation Army was was one example. What has surprised you most? Or how does X compare to Y? Or how did your interest in storytelling begin? There are seven of these origin type questions, compare and contrast questions. There's the tell me more questions. And there's the compare and contrast from this period to that period or this mindset to that mindset, or this strategy to that strategies. Really, when you put some thought into your questions and you have a few in your back pockets, you don't need very many. It becomes autopilot that you know how to bring those up as the time is right. And being spontaneous about it. I'm going to turn that on you a little bit. What would you say is the high and low point of your career in journeying along the storytelling process? Let the story do the work in 2007 was definitely one of the highs. It's a major life bucket. It's on your bucket list. Bucket list. I just literally felt a lot more relaxed once I checked it off. <laughs> That's awesome. It's one of my dreams too. It's actually how I found you. I'm doing research oh. for my own book. So oh, see, look you're going to be a high point things. on my journey. Yeah, <laughs> look at all the great things that it brought me. Like it connected me with you. Right. Um, so that's a high point. A low point is 2013 and 14 had a great start. So I started in 2010 and very busy 11 and 12 just gave me that false sense of confidence. Actually that, ah, things are just going to look this great forever. Right. It didn't. 13 and 14, those were very slow years for me. I literally wonder, well, the economy is good, but 
nobody's knocking on my door. You know, do I think like, what's wrong with me? Right. I still don't know why after having all these busy periods, but what I was able to do was I came up with tons of content because I wasn't busy. What I came up with in two years formed the basis for the book. That speaks to so many people who are struggling right now in this era of COVID and everybody's business is on a different trajectory, of course. But I know for me, that's how I've been using the time is just leaning in and trying to understand what are my core beliefs so that I could communicate those and tell my story in a way that others yeah. could connect with as a leader and as a marketer. There are, you know, feasts and famine periods since ancient times, biblical times and Modern days, there's no difference. Of course, those who are really struggling, they have to do what it takes to survive and take care of their family. For those of us who are still okay, because I've had 13 and 14 under my belt now, I don't question, is there something wrong with me? Rather, I relish this opportunity to create that podcast family in business for Kellogg at Northwestern. I launched a certified storytelling story facilitator program that I've been wanting to do for years, in fact. And then I've been involved in original research on first-generation wealth creators. Would have had no time for that otherwise. You're being able to flex your curiosity muscle in a lot of different ways right now and seeking stories all over the place. We will absolutely link to all of your material because I know for me, finding somebody who taught the art of storytelling, not only in your book, but just in some of your podcasts, your videos online, I've learned so many nuggets that I'm certainly going to put into practice. For me, the difference in you, Esther, was just that you focus so much on the personal piece of it. There's a lot of people in the universe that focus on storytelling and how to do it well, but you really dig into how to do that from a very personal space. And that resonated with me not only as a leader, but as a marketer, because to tell us a company's story or to launch a new product or to tell the history of a brand, you really have to go to that highs and lows of the company's history to make their audiences connect with them. Thank you for acknowledging that piece. That is the very much core of what I do. And I can't wait to read your book. (laughs) Well, hopefully I get it out. I will be reaching out to you for advice because it is definitely a very vulnerable process to name all the things that you believe and teach other people practically what practical ways to do it. I could learn a lot from you. I am in your service anytime (laughs) I can be helpful. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to samantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. My last question for you is, what's a question that has been ruminating in your mind that you would love to pass along to another? Especially given what everyone, and this is literally everyone, have been through in 2020, I would like to use this question that I stole from a Freakonomic podcast. 
What was one thing that you believed in for a long time, and then later discovered that you were wrong or have changed your mind? I've been ruminating on that a lot as it relates to all the differences that have been in our life in 2020. A great question like that. I can write a book based on that. It's a great leadership question to ask your teams, right? What has changed personally, professionally? Very cool. Well, so good to meet you. I do hope to keep in touch. And again, just thank you for doing this. I so appreciate it. Same here. Same here. This is my honor. My pleasure. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you soon, Esther. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. One of my favorite insights that Esther shared is this idea that you can modify your approach by watching people's reactions. After speaking with Esther, I started sharing some of my ideas and stories differently, as I just wasn't getting the reaction I had hoped. Sharing fewer facts and more stories about my ideas helped others connect more easily. In addition, I love her IRS model, intriguing beginning, riveting middle, and satisfying end. If we all craft our stories in that way, it makes it easier to think about how to tell stories beyond the linear approach. Plus, as Esther says, it leaves our audiences wanting more, which is really the goal of so many new business pitch meetings where we're trying to get clients and our senior leadership to invest the time to see the bigger goal. If you want to learn more about Esther's work, you can go to leadershipstorylab.com. I've spent quite a bit of time there, downloading many of her materials and worksheets. You can also order her book, Let the Story Do the Work on Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in this season. On our next episode, I'll be talking to a really well-known and innovative advertising and marketing thinker, Tim Williams. Tim works with agencies to help them refine their core brand message and go to market strategy. And while he speaks in terms of how professional service firms can leverage his ideas, I find many different kinds of marketers can benefit from his message. As always, please subscribe to our show by downloading all three of our seasons anywhere you listen to podcasts or go to marketingsweats.com or samantle.com slash blog to learn more. While you're there, I'd sure appreciate it if you'd give me a review. We're always trying to learn and get better based on your feedback. Until next time, keep up the good work, marketers. Marketers.